0: Key West is 100 miles from Havana, Cuba. Gainesville to Orlando is about the same distance, the same with Naples and Fort Lauderdale. It's not an impossible distance. It is a quick hop across the ocean. Flagler's railroad from Miami to Key West was 165 miles. Flagler never left the ground while crossing the ocean. His men waded through wetlands and oceans and rapid straits. It was brutal, exhausting, terrifying work, but the ground beneath their feet was always a certainty. For Domingo Rosillo del Toro, that sort of certainty was rare. He was a pilot in the earliest years of air travel. The Wright brothers flew for the first time 10 years ago. Domingo was 35 in 1913, the son of Cubans who had fled to Africa for a number of years, but eventually returned in the early years of the 20th century. Cuba had been invaded by America during the Spanish-American War, but gained independence on May 20th, 1902. It was a hard few years following this, the sort of instability that led to the coup in the 50s. Domingo was a pilot, and in his 30s, he traveled to Paris to get proper aviation training and an international pilot's license. Another man, Augustin Parla, was following a similar path. Parla was a Key West native, son of Cuban immigrants, who fled during the first revolution in Cuba. Domingo and Parlo were competing to be the first to fly over the Florida Straits from Key West to Havana. Their ambition wasn't just inspired by legacy, there was also cash in the game. $10,000 to be specific, about a quarter of a million in modern cash. Flagler's railroad carried their planes across the ocean all the way to Key West. Flagler's excess land on the island had created the perfect launching spot called Trumbo Point. The day was set. Domingo would launch his plane from Trumbo Point... On may 20th the day of cuban independence it would be a celebration in cuba both of the 11th anniversary of their newfound freedoms but of a cuban man bringing in history on his home soil except like always florida's fickle weather proved a detriment he had to push it back just three days if he had flown on the day he had scheduled he would have taken off the same day that henry flagler would die instead he took off three days earlier may 17th 1913. His rival, Parla, was devastated, and some stories share that he fired his pistol at Domingo's plane as it sailed into the sky. Domingo didn't travel alone. He brought with him the first piece of international mail to Cuba, from the mayor of Key West to the mayor of Havana. The Cuban navy floated below, ready to snatch him from the crashing waves if he didn't make it all the way. His plane was a sunny yellow piercing the blue and gray sky, streaking over the Cuban coast as boats greeted him from the sea and cheerful artillery fire greeted him from the land. It said there were 50,000 people waiting along the coast for their nation's new hero to do the impossible. He set a record for the world's longest flight over water, crossing a short 90 miles across the Florida Straits. This world record lasted for a whopping two days when Domingo's rival completed the same flight, just slightly off course soaring for 117 miles to cuba he came in second place but got a new record you win some you lose some three days after domingo made it to cuba and the day after parla made the same trip henry flagler passed away he would be buried in the memorial presbyterian church the same church he had built when his eldest daughter died the same church where his first wife mary and his second child were buried He was carried in a horse-drawn hearse through the streets of St. Augustine from the Ponce de Leon Hotel to his church. All of the trains along his railway were halted for ten minutes all along the state. For a moment, on May 23, 1913, as Henry Flagler made his way to his final resting place, the state of Florida held its breath. Then, after the father of Florida was interred, the rhythm of progress thrummed forward flagler would have wanted it that way the next 100 years would prove that the legacy of flagler would not just be that of opulence and excitement but also that of ruins heartache and change i'm nick Delisandro. welcome to wait five minutes the floridian podcast this week the fourth and final chapter in the story of henry flagler's life his third wife's mysterious death his final hotel's delayed construction, and his railroad's ultimate demise. Chapter 4. Palaces of Ambition When Flagler passed, his wife was nearly 50. Mary Lily Keenan Flagler was the heir to a massive fortune, about $100 million in that era's cash. Converted to modern currency, that's about $6 billion. Keenan, the socialite, was now richer than she could have ever dreamed, owner of Flagler's Railroad, Flagler's Hotels, Flagler's Steamship Agency, Flagler's Energy Company, Flagler's Water Companies, and Flagler's Newspapers. One such newspaper was the Miami Herald, which had fallen apart in 1907. Flagler had saved the little paper that same year. Two years after Henry died, a young woman from Minnesota, who had recently gone through a divorce, became a journalist for said paper. Her name was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Her legacy would be built on confronting men like Flagler for the rest of her life. But they passed each other by in history. Flagler's widow was not only the new heir to the entire empire, she was also utterly alone. His company was still rolling, building deep water ports along the coast and expanding travel opportunities and even planning a new hotel in Key West. She was not equipped for this new responsibility. She barely had time to grieve her late husband. She was 48, going gray, drinking heavily and abusing opium to get through the darker days. In 1915, Mary was traveling often, including back to her family in North Carolina. There, she found the answer to her problems in the form of an old flame, one Robert Bingham, recently widowed, nearly broke, and seeking a new path himself. They had known each other in their younger years, striking up a romance in the year right before she met Henry Flagler. Their relationship fizzled then, but 25 years later, immediately following the loss of their respective partners, they found each other again. The story goes that Mary, lonely and bored, found Robert in Asheville, North Carolina, and pursued him until they were married in late 1916. It had reinvigorated the normally social and bubbly Mary. She reopened her home in Palm Beach to guests, visited her various residences around the country, and brought the gossip columns into a tizzy. Concern was raised that Robert was a bit of a gold digger, searching out Mary's extensive fortune. He did, however, sign a will that, quote, waived his claims to her fortune, end quote she did go on to pay off all of the debts that he owed which were in the thousands and gave him seven hundred thousand dollars in standard oil stock mary had several different wills written in several different states all preventing bingham from inheriting her fortune should she die but then she got sick nothing fatal just a series of illnesses that made her weak likely due to stressful times and increasingly addictive behavior bingham called in a doctor to take care of her Secretly, Bingham and the doctor schemed to put Mary on more addictive drugs, ones that would make her increasingly sedated. He used this numb state of mind to trick Mary into changing her will. Now, Mary was addicted to morphine, and if she died, all of that money would go to Bingham. Over the following months, her condition grew worse and worse, and her will was altered. By July, morphine sent her into convulsions, and she died on July 27, 1917 just four years after her late husband. Her death certificate listed brain swelling and an unusual heart condition. There was no mention of the morphine, though an autopsy later would reveal quote-unquote enormous amounts of morphine. There were also traces of arsenic and mercury, two highly poisonous metals. Bingham went to court, and public opinion was in his favor. He was a small-town politician grieving and down on his luck up against the rich family of his dead wife and the power of standard oil it was david versus goliath and david always wins the contest of the will ended and bingham received five million dollars he had been investigated had all of his contacts and schemes revealed and he still made out literally like a bandit bingham turned that cash into a solid business that lasted for decades now one of his granddaughters sally bingham has created the Mary Lily Bingham Trust Fund to provide scholarships for girls, end quote. Mary was a joy to Flagler in his last years, the peace that he had needed for his life. Now, a century later, Mary's name is used to make the world a better place. In Key West, in 2019, the world may not be a better place, but it's certainly a more exuberant one i visited New Orleans several times in the past few years and have found the city's energy to be unlike anywhere else on earth. It simmers with character, modern and fresh, while stewing in its own marvelous history and cultures. Key West feels a little like that, sort of like a Florida flavored version of the Crescent City. There aren't many beaches in Key West, which is a little unusual for a vacation city. There are different segments of the island, more suburban on its outer edges, more commercial along the central Duval Street, more packed and urban right in the middle. A historic cemetery is smack in the middle of the island next to several old bungalows. When I skirted along the border, a family was having a private service for a lost relative. The island, populous and colorful and commercial, was still a home to some. It was so very Florida, and yet, unlike anywhere else in the rest of the state, I biked the island for about five hours, had some lunch, visited some museums, saw as many Flagler statues as I could manage, and decided that the day was done. I had a long drive home after all, past Miami and Fort Lauderdale and the old Yeehaw Junction, not to mention the fact that my constant bike riding had resulted in, no kidding, the single worst sunburn I have ever received in my life. My arms had a clean line between unburnt and burnt skin. There is a shadow of white under where my watch rested. The lines of my collar and my forehead were a bright red. When I got back to my car, I theorized that it was just heat exhaustion. The extreme pain and peeling of the next few days revealed that that was wrong. Regardless, I inhaled a bottle of water and set off to see one final spot on the island before I went home. Casa Marina. Flagler always had a hotel in the major cities where he built his railroad. So now, in Key West, the railroad needed a hotel. Henry was gone, and the late Mrs. Flagler had just followed. In 1918, the company wanted to move forward. Flagler had dreamed of this final hotel, but never saw it done. Maybe his former co-workers felt they owed him, like the circle needed to be complete. So they called their old architect friends, John Carrere and Thomas Hastings. Carrere and Hastings built Flagler's first hotel in St. Augustine, then went on to build the New York Public Library, the original Metropolitan Opera House, a monument to President McKinley in Buffalo, several colleges expanded campuses, and dozens and dozens more. These men were not nobody architects as they were when they built the Ponce de Leon Hotel. Still, with the man who first believed in them now gone, building this final hotel could be a fitting tribute. It was a relatively quick build, whipped up in just about two years, right next to the southernmost point of the continental US, currently marked by a concrete buoy. It was also built near one of the only sandy spots on the mostly beach-free island. The structure was made from a unique German concrete, the same that was used to build the Seven Mile Bridge a few miles east. On New Year's Eve 1920, the Casa Marina, meaning Marine Home in Latin languages, opened to a luxurious party. The Casa Marina was a home of luxury, built for the richest of citizens around the world. Flagler's old business partner, John D. Rockefeller, now known internationally as the richest man in the world, even visited the Casa. Presidents would come over the years, including Harding and Truman, but Rockefeller arriving in Key West must have been some closure for the brutal old tycoon remembering his late partner. Within a decade, flying to Havana was no longer a competition as it was for our friend Domingo. By 1927, a new airline company had set up shop in Key West and started selling tickets from Key West to Havana. This company was known as Pan American World Airways, colloquially called Pan Am. In the mid-20th century, Pan Am would be one of the most flashy travel companies in the country, popularizing air travel for everyone. But back in the 20s, on the verge of the depression, the rich could take a trip across the Florida Straits to the lavish island of Cuba. In the 20th century, America was still extending their travel frontier south. But a metaphorical wall would soon go up between America and the rest of the world. When America entered the Second World War, Casa Marina was purchased by the Navy and was used to house Navy officers throughout the war. When the hotel was repurchased afterwards, it was returned to luxury, briefly, throughout the early 50s as a destination for the rich and famous. Cary Grant and Rita Hayworth were amongst the visitors. This would not last long. The army arrived at the hotel, confronting the increasing threat of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Revolution had hit the island hard, and Fidel Castro rose to power on a tide of bloodshed. By the early 60s, Key West was 100 miles from a believed missile silo, and America was on lockdown. The rich didn't want to visit a possible ground zero. Casa Marina fell to disuse even after the crisis. A series of botched renovations left it in shambles, and slowly, it lost its original magic. In 2008, a renovation restored the Casa to the original splendor of its glory days. Today, the central lobby is covered in dark wood, columns that stretch to a simple ceiling, and warm furniture along the corners. A wall of doors and windows look out to a pool and the long stretching sea beyond. There isn't anything glamorous to this lobby, not like the showy palace that is the Ponce de Leon Hotel. It's much more subtle, a cool elegance that stands in contrast to the pink-toned conch shacks along the rest of the quay. A wedding was about to begin when I visited, and a crowd of beautifully dressed groomsmen and bridesmaids flittered around, laughing nervous laughs. The bars and back hallways and bathrooms were lined with photos I had never seen of Henry Flagler. Sometimes he was standing on empty patches of dirt, sometimes riding on a train car, sometimes in a crowd of other important men. He never came here, never set foot on this property. I want to tell you that it feels like he's still alive here, his legacy still carries on in this beautiful hotel, but it feels distant. It's Flagler's style, certainly, but something about this place just doesn't fit in the big map of his life that I've gotten to know so well. The roads out of Key West feel redundant as you move towards Miami. The way in held so much anticipation. What is across that bridge, around that bend, beyond the tree line, but going back you know what's coming your way. There's the seven-mile bridge, there's the island with all the deer, there's the unusual blimp that dangles out at sea, there's the abandoned bridge from the old railroad fallen to disrepair. I could see one end of that bridge, connecting to land, but it was closed to pedestrians. The other end, however, ended at Bahia Honda. From the road, I saw a bustling parking lot and what looked like a trail that led up to the abandoned old bridge. There, just off the road, was the closest I would come to setting foot on those old ruins, the ones that had fallen apart on one awful Labor Day, when a hurricane killed hundreds and decimated the original Flagler Railroad. We didn't start naming hurricanes until 1953. Up till then, hurricanes were just called the Hurricane of 1906, or whatever specific year the hurricane arrived in. The Labor Day Hurricane of 1935 has no other name. The city of Key West was bankrupt at the time. Authors had taken a shine to the island, including Ernest Hemingway, but this didn't save the city from its own failing economy. No one was coming to the island anymore. Tourists didn't want to make the trip by train, especially as cars became more and more popular. The Keys needed a road. The railway could serve as the perfect structure, just build the road on top. Veterans of the First World War were looking for jobs, and hundreds moved down to the islands to work on this new endeavor hurricane tracking equipment had not much improved since flagler's days a storm generated on labor day and was moving for a collision with key west wind picked up along the islands as trains rocketed south to grab the veterans from their shabby camps on the beaches water washed over the tracks and the sky turned from blue to gray to pitch black the train moving south run by engineer jj haycraft picked up only a few when his train was ripped from the tracks by ocean waters. Only his locomotive stayed in place. The train itself was thrown a hundred feet from the ground and was destroyed. In the worker villages further along, wood and rain and trees and debris and bodies swirled through the air, killing the workers by the hundreds. There was nothing anyone could do anymore. Over 400 people were killed, nearly all of whom were workers developing the road. The hurricane, now considered a Category 5, destroyed much of Flagler's original Overseas Railway, sending metal structures and busted lumber into the crashing waves. The company could not sustain these damages, and the remains of the railroad were sold to the state of Florida in order for them to construct the Overseas Highway, much of which still exists to this day. 22 years after Flagler was gone, his worst fear came true. The hurricane was called an act of God, but if he was still here, he would likely have just called it more bad luck. I'm the only visitor on the short hill. Scrubland lines the dirt path, and my burned skin ached in the late afternoon sunlight. The path rose and rose, seeming almost entirely natural, until the dirt turns to concrete, and the trail rises out of view. Over a ridge, the concrete extended as far as the eye could see. It was light gray, bleached by decades of raw sunlight. The concrete eventually fell away. Over a small gap of just a few feet, there were the remains of the railroad, metal and frail. A thick fence kept me from going further, and a sign briefly summarized where I was standing, but I already knew. It was the closest I have ever felt to Flagler. Not any of his hotels or in any of the museums did I feel so close to his actual, physical footsteps. And let me tell you, it was… quiet. There is another path in Florida's history that begins in 1890, before Henry crossed the river, before the cities burst along the coast, before the Great Freezes. There weren't a lot of Floridians, really. There were people down in Key West, there were Seminoles and their hidden communities, there were tourists in St. Augustine and Jacksonville and the burgeoning Tampa, but if the railroad didn't split the wilderness and barrel down trees as it went, there would essentially be no east coast. There wouldn't be much of a tourist industry, Someone would likely have come along, because they always did, but would they have done what Henry did as effectively as he did it? There's no way to know. But every time heartbreak crashed against Flagler's shores, there was some new horizon for him to chase. Each leap through the wilderness was coupled with loss. Flagler was by no means a perfect man. He was anti-union, the former head of the largest monopoly in the world, a patron for the rich, and a giant who stepped on any ecosystem that got in his way. It's so easy to judge him by 2019 standards, as our oceans rise and our forests dwindle, and we continue to fight for workers, and we continue to advocate for unions, and we continue to battle corporations. One hundred years later and we're still fighting. I don't blame Flagler for that. Whenever the urge to judge him floods back in, I try to remember one thing. The people. I remember the hundreds at Pride on Duval Street. I remember the college students I encountered at Flagler College last year playing music under a coral painted hallway. I remember the sea turtle conservation center just a few miles from Flagler's former home. I remember the funeral in Key West, the relative being interred in the middle of the island. I remember the pumping music of Little Havana at the western edge of Miami. I remember my friends who hail from Palm Beach and Miami and the Keys. I remember the fishermen, the surfers, the kids with their sandcastles, the old ladies in their big hats, the couples taking pictures by the sea, the bicyclists along the trails, the drunk tourists dancing down the streets, the out-of-state Floridians who have built a retirement along our sandy shores. It's all so present. I'm not asking you to forgive the pain we're all still struggling with, the negative ripples over a century that keep us up at night, but standing on that bridge, looking out at the ruins of that old railroad, you can't help but remember it all. You can't help but imagine a world without Flagler. How bleak it would look. I decided that day that there's no point in wondering about that world. It's not the one we're in. We're living in Flagler's Florida, and the best we can do every single day is leave it better than we found it. Thank you so much for listening to this fourth and final episode of my series about Florida's famous tycoon Henry Flagler. I hope you have enjoyed listening to it as much as I have enjoyed creating it. It's such a joy to tell a story as important and as important to me as this one. If you have enjoyed it, please consider leaving it a rating or a review. Little shows like this one need your help. Reviews and high ratings get it noticed, and I want nothing more than these stories to be noticed. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. The Flagler theme song is "Echoes Boogie Dancehall by Lobo Loco. You can find links to the research used in this episode in the description below. The Flagler series art was done by Lauren Nix. You can follow her on Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. That's Nix spelt N-I-X. Next week, I'll be taking a week off to celebrate the 4th of July. I will be back the following Friday, July 12th, with a special profile about Orlando's favorite astronaut, John Watts Young, and how his career led America to the moon. After that, on July 19th, I'll tell you the story of the little bird that inspired me to start this show in the first place, the Black Skimmer. Then, July 26th will be the very special one-year anniversary of Wait 5 Minutes. I'll be giving you updates on this past year about all of the stories we've covered so far and telling you a number of new stories about this first year in podcasting. There will also be some very exciting announcements about the future of Wade 5 Minutes around that time, so keep an eye on the social media channels. Until then, I'm Nick DeLisandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good one.